Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is The Great Birth Rebellion. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. We have two guests today. We're just leveling up. Uh, we've got Linnell Moran and Alison Weatherstone, who we will introduce to you. But today, we really want to just talk about the, the state of the midwifery workforce internationally, but also what's happening here in Australia. So B and I have, have welcomed two guests are very high profile. We're so like famous now that we can wield, you know, just like wands and attract people that are in really high and important places. So Linnell, I'm going to start with you because you're in a high and important place. <laughs> and you also started an initiative called the Vaginal Club. So we'll learn about that as well. But Linnell, can you start by introducing yourself and where you fit into this picture of what we're talking about today, the state of the midwifery workforce? Well, I'm a midwife I'm based in Nam in Melbourne and I am particularly passionate about this area. So when I first started working as a midwife, I was working in a busy tertiary in a core mainstream midwifery context. And I found soon after my grad year that I was feeling very isolated and just really wanting to find people who reflected my philosophy of practice and to help me preserve that philosophy. And so in 2016, I just reached out to the community and sent a Facebook post saying, is anyone feeling this way? Would they be interested in gathering? And so, yeah, then the Vaginal Club was born, which was set up to be a journal club to discuss emerging research and look at how we could incorporate that into our practice. But it turned into something much more. And now it's a place that we meet every six or so weeks. And it's been a place where we discuss solutions for systemic change and how we can better advocate for the profession, but also just to share knowledge and wisdom and connection. And so we have midwives from all different practice settings, all different models of care, levels of experience, and we're just coming together. And it's different every time we gather, but it's it's just become so important and it's been definitely a sustaining factor for me. And so it's growing and it's really exciting to see where that's going. After working in core for a couple of years, I was really um, grateful to move into NGP and work in the publicly funded home birth program and had a phenomenal team that I work with and it was a beautiful place to be. And now I have just moved into full-time academia, teaching midwives and at such an amazing cohort at ACU. So loving that. And I'm now doing my PhD with Professor Sarah Bays and Kim Foster. Who I oh, what's, your, what's your PhD topic? Do you know yet? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's about looking at the significance of professional connections and relationships in midwifery sustainability. Amazing. And so you only just recently started at ACU. Here you've got a publication in July 2023. So I think we already know you're going to be prolific. <laughs> um, and you forgot to mention that you were nominated in the category of Australian Midwife of the of the Year last year. Yeah, I was in some pretty good company there. <laughs> we were holding hands, weren't we? <laughs> Amazing. And we've got Alison Weatherstone with us here too from the Australian College of Midwives and her 
uh, prestigious title is Chief Midwife. It sounds so Viking. It is pretty incredible. It's got a lot of expectation attached to that, though. So I was really pleased to be in Bali recently with Jacqueline Dunkley-Bent, who is the ICM Chief Midwife as well. So I think we are going to do incredible things for midwifery leadership in the near future. But that's also just working on all the amazing work that's come before us till now. So starting to see that all come to fruition Can you talk us through a little bit of your backstory? How did we get here? How do we get to chief midwife? I know it's pretty crazy. When I started out as a student midwife, I had no idea this is where I would end up. And I also didn't realize just how political midwifery is. So that has been a rapid learning curve for me. But I am from Western Australia originally and did my registered nursing and knew I would always do midwifery, just wasn't sure when that would be in my career journey. But I had two children of my own and then went straight in and did my mid and absolutely loved it. Have not looked back since then. And so I always tend to gravitate to rural and remote areas of Australia. So I have worked across Queensland, Western Australia and Victoria and will head to the city and then edge my way back to rural and remote. So I've got quite a strong passion for rural and remote midwifery and access, I think, and choice for women in those areas in particular. And so then I dabbled in different models of care and then decided I would venture into midwifery leadership because I was a little bit critical of some of my previous midwifery managers, but always learned from them. And I thought I can't actually uh, talk to this until I actually experience it myself. So then put my money where my mouth is. So I ventured into middle management for midwifery and had the shock of my life and thought, oh my gosh, we've got so much work to do here because realised that really midwifery didn't have that strong voice that we need to make decisions at the table. So set on a bit of a trajectory to increase my experience, experience around what would motivate midwives to go into leadership and management and also what would be successful to drive our profession forward. So I moved over to Queensland for that and I've been in Queensland for the last eight years and had a lot to do with implementing, evaluating and expanding midwifery group practice in particular and then got myself into a position where I could backfill some director of midwifery roles and executive director of midwifery roles and that was predominantly in the public sector so always knew the importance of having a peak professional body and an industrial body attached to the professions so when the opportunity came up to apply for the chief midwife role I thought right that's what I'm going to do because so passionate about midwifery and loved that you talked about students Linnell because I had a really great midwifery student experience and I think that shaped my career and I know that not all of our students get that so for me it's really important in this sort of role to maintain what's happening on the ground because if your motivation is uh, what looking after midwives and what we do for women you can't go wrong. Mm. And what do you what do you have to do as the chief midwife? So many things. (laughs) So I've never been so busy in my life, but the best part of it is meeting new people. And for me, it's having a real national perspective. It is crazy how different things are in different states and territories in terms of legislation and policy and procedure and those sorts of things. So that has been really interesting. Similar challenges in each state and territory, but slightly different ways of addressing or approaching them. So for me, that's been great. So influencing policy, doing a lot of 
of education, looking at our educational resources. We've got some great conferences and at the national event where we really showcase research in midwifery. I think that's really important. And then doing a lot of the media. I've been doing an incredible amount of media, but it's such a huge opportunity to raise the profile of midwifery. So I think now any opportunity we get, it is like, let's talk about midwifery. Even the difference between what's a midwife and what's an endorsed midwife, what's a privately practicing midwife. And that's so, yeah. Amazing. That's only a snippet of my day. I can only imagine. Gosh, I just, I mean, hats off. I'm glad it's you, not me. Uh, Let's get into this episode. So, Linnell, I want to start with you because your paper was kind of the catalyst for us going in this direction to talk about the state of the midwifery uh, workforce. And I was, I am still actually, gosh, it's still going on, on a research team at Western Sydney University and we're studying birth in the time of COVID. So I'm deep in that literature and that kind of analysis of all the findings of what happened to midwives during COVID But I'm super interested to hear from you because you've just done an integrative review of the international literature and asking the question, what is known about midwives, well-being and resilience? So can you give us a little bit of a summary of what this paper is about? And if you're on the mailing list for this podcast, you'll get to read a copy of this as it'll be in the resource folder. Um, Yeah. Thanks, Mel. So this was uh, basically something that I was really deeply interested in and there was a lot of writing people doing amazing work in this area so I want to also acknowledge all the other people who are investing and researching and trying to illuminate this issue but as we found when we did the literature um, search we had 509 results but a lot of the findings were involving dual populations so it looked at the experiences um, the well-being and the experiences of the adversity for nurses and midwives and the data wasn't distinguishable and so because the midwifery role and profession is unique and it has its own professional context and nuances we wanted to really examine that population specifically so it really brought the number down we ended up with 12 papers for analysis and that was from an internet international perspective which was fantastic the analysis of that led to three core themes which was risk factors and adversity protective factors and resilience and then finally sustaining factors and well-being in midwifery and so through that i mean i don't know how deeply you want me to go i think we're just going to do a power snapshots but under risk factors and adversity there were two sort of sub themes one was the organizational and systemic factors so looking at all the things like score skill mix staff shortages and unachievable workloads, increased medicalization and risk-adverse policies and protocols, negative workplace cultures. But another theme that arose was the inherent nature of midwifery work. And so that looked at the emotional labor involved in supporting families who are experiencing bereavement or experience obstetric violence or birth trauma or other adverse outcomes, as well as being um, unable to practice in alignment with the midwifery philosophy. The second core theme was protective factors and resilience. And this sort of uh, highlighted the fact that there were contrasting and varied interpretations of resilience being used. Some applied a trait-based approach and some a more contemporary approach that looked at uh, processes of emotional adaptation in the face of adversity. We identified out of that some personal protective factors. So they were the professional of the personal characteristics, sorry, and also external protective factors. And they were more um, practice-related things like model of care, 
and when midwives were able to practice their full scope of midwifery, when, when midwives worked in protective workplace cultures that featured respect and supportive professional relationships. So these were all identified as protective factors supporting resilience. But one study which was a important little nugget, uh, just really eliminated that the expectation and, and responsibility to be resilient fell on the midwife and not the organisation. And so that's something that really um, spiked our interest. And it's not a unique um, finding, I guess. A lot of people have, are feeling that and it resonated with a lot of midwives. The third theme was sustaining factors and well-being in midwifery, and that looked at organisation and systemic factors again, but looking at the positive workplace cultures that are strongly associated with midwifery well-being and strong midwifery leadership and the benefits of that. But it also looked at the inherent nature of midwifery work again, but here is a sustaining factor. And so it was really interesting to see this parallel between what could also be a risk factor could also be a sustaining factor. And that looked at a midwife's strong sense of vocation, desiring to contribute to the greater good, and the sense of belonging we get as midwives were seen as really protective as well as our role with birthing women and people and developing those strong relationships. And in conclusion, it, the whole uh, review found that untenably high levels of workplace adversity and rapidly deteriorating conditions is, is greatly impacting the well-being and resilience of midwives. It also identified a list of practice recommendations, which I think we'll go through later, Mel and B. So if you're happy, I mean, I'm happy to go through them now, but I think they'll tie in nicely with our conversation as it unfolds. But it, it I just identifies that swift action is required to address the crisis. I'm glad what he's talking about today. Exactly. And and that's what you open up the paper with is that internationally the midwifery force is facing a professional crisis due to numerous organisational and individual factors that have led to midwives leaving the profession. Mm. Um, do we know how many midwives are leaving? Like what's the percentage of midwives leaving? Um, and Alison, you could probably answer this you know, from an Australian perspective, but is there a percentage that we kind of, is it accepted understanding of how many midwives leave every year? Well, it's interesting. I'll just say with this um, research, this review was conducted just during the pandemic. So it doesn't capture that post-pandemic further exacerbation of these existing adversities. So I'll just mm -hmm. say that. But, yeah, I'm sure Alison would have the data in terms of that. So, Alison, do we know much about the state of the Australian workforce, because this is, um, uh, Linnell did, you know, a broad spectrum, international look. Is there anything specific to Australia that kind of stood out to you there? Oh, that's a problem we're having here as well. Yeah, so when we look at, uh, we've got approximately 33,000 um, midwives in Australia at the moment, but that doesn't actually equate to the number of um, midwives employed in midwifery roles. And so when you look at the data, it's not really at a level yet where we can really pull useful trends and information from it. So I think there's a long way to go to improve our data collection and really drill down and understand what our workforce is doing day to day and what the future state of our workforce looks like. And I know there's a number of national pieces of work in progress to uh, to really look at that for our profession. It has been around a uh, 
half a percent reduction annually in data if you look at Australia between 2016 and 2019. But we do know that there's been a significant impact uh, through the pandemic on that. And so we saw a lot of extra midwives leaving the profession during that time and continue to do so now because of the impacts of the pandemic that are still carrying on. So we have approximately 1,500 graduate midwives every year, but some of them are not either accessing the model of care they are wanting to work in or they are not accessing a graduate midwifery program and so may also not go into the midwifery employment. So I think we've got uh, certainly got data we can work with, but we also know we've got an ageing midwifery population and we need to address that because while we've got a workforce crisis, as we are calling it at the moment, nationally, globally, we also need to look at what that future state's going to look like. And I think what we also need to be mindful, and I'm really confident that we'll be talking around these sorts of things today, is how to attract new people into the profession, because it it really is such a great uh, career choice. And I think we need to be mindful of, you know, the media influences around potential new new midwives and that's an opportunity for us and certainly that's what I look to do when I'm speaking to high school students and look at pathways for uh, midwifery and also scope of practices are looking at uh, the increase in endorsed midwives in Australia and that's a really positive thing. Mm. I've got here because I remember when I was studying the average age of the midwife was 42 but from the last stats that I could get which was 2017 the average age of a midwife, it's around 47 to 48 is the average age. And this is from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. So the 2015 reports are quite old now. Um, and you may have more recent data on that. But looking at um, that, the average age is, age is 47 to 48 and average amount of hours worked is between 20 and 23. You got anything more current than that, Alison? Or is that because that, no. that's age, that's like... Yeah, so I know... We are. And I think the the counter to that is there's emerging research and data that's coming out to suggest that we've got a really early career midwifery workforce. And I know that the Fusia study out of Victoria did touch on that. So while we have midwives leaving the profession, it is leaving a, you know, zero to five year experience or five to 10 year experience level for our midwives that are providing the predominant amount of care in in our community. So yes, there should be new data published very soon. I know that all of the workforce mapping is well underway. Look forward to seeing that, especially with the impacts of the global pandemic. So that's what we're looking at with that mass exodus as as the population ages and they come to retirement and then we've got this junior workforce. And that is what I'm really hearing from the community is um, a huge point of stress for a lot of junior midwives. And if that is then how they enter their workforce in terms of sustainability and burnout, but also in terms of what they're taught. We're not, there's not, it doesn't feel like there's the capacity at the moment to really hand down that incredible wisdom that midwives hold and and pass on to the younger generations. It feels like they're just, they're losing all of that skill and just trying to keep up or be able to, you know, breathe through that shift. Oh my gosh, it's worse, it's worse than I thought it was now that you guys are talking about aging workforces and under-skilled workforce coming. Because now under the NMBA, and I need some more information, and Alison, I feel like you're the right person for this, there was something put out in December around changes to insurance and people that offer lots of different things. So birth debriefing, 
incontinent support, antenatal education. And now, and I'm if I butch this, just jump in. I'd rather you take it over actually and just tell me what's going on. But the NMBA now has, as of June, published that in order to offer antenatal education, lactation services, incontinence support, birth debriefs that you practice as a privately practicing midwife. Is that because they need insurance or do they need to be endorsed? And what does that look like? Because I feel like lots of midwives are trying to stay in midwifery, but they're getting out of the system. They don't want to work in fragmented care. They can't work in continuity. So they're trying to do different things that keep them in the midwifery world, like antenatal education or lactation support. But it feels like that's getting harder to do. Do they have to be endorsed right now? Can you give me a the proper information around what's happening there? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I think what you saw was the changes to the safety and quality guidelines, which then impacts the insurance. And so there's a couple of different things there. There's the endorsed midwife pathway. Then there's the um, exemption for the intrapartum insurance if you're having home birth. And then you do require, if you're doing just antenatal or postnatal care, that is slightly different as well. So the NMBA does uh, a few webinars on that, but I think we've acknowledged that there are so many questions around this. And you raise a really good point that midwives are looking for different opportunities and pathways to practice. So there's a lot of little gaps. So I think what Australian College of Midwives definitely is looking at providing a resource bank for endorsed midwives so that you can actually have a source of truth and connect to how do you practice outside of the system because we know that women also need the choice to access these services and models, but so do midwives to work in them. So the insurance question is slightly complex and I probably would like to park that for this podcast and just answer those maybe on notice. There's a few different nuances as well. I recently went to uh, the Endorsed Midwife Conference and that generated so many questions. So you can see that even in a system where there's process, there's still a lot of questions to be asked and had. So I think as a you know, professional organisation and also the red regulatory body, there's a, uh, a gap there that we need to sort of develop frequently asked questions and fact sheets, yeah. But it's been like that, it's been like that since the insurance changed though. Like we've, if you haven't got insurance for your workplace, you have to have it for yourself. And then the catch is, is that if you're not endorsed, you can't access the MIGA insurance product. That's right insurance so you can access if you're not endorsed you can't do it which means that they have to do that time in the system now if that happens that's going to be huge because i think it's already happened it's already that way but how because look at the so there's midwives now that most midwives i know that are lactation consultants aren't endorsed lactation consultants have their own insurance under lactation Lactation. Because you so don't what have about- to be a midwife to be a lactation consultant either. Yeah. Okay. And so then, and same with in the incontinence services and antenatal education, like surely people doing calm birth and hypnobirth, they're not all. They have their own insurance as well. So, it, so calm birth and hypnobirth, if they're. Sure. It's not saying you have to be endorsed. No. No. So you have to be. So the people doing calm birth and hypnobirth get insurance through that product, but only to deliver that product. If you're a lactation consultant, you can get insurance as a lactation consultant to do that. But you can't, as a midwife, if you're working in a hospital, go out and start running antenatal classes, private antenatal classes, doing delivering the content that you've created that you want to share. 
it's considered midwifery um, and it needs to be under insurance. And so far, MIG has been the group that will insure midwives, but only if you're endorsed. So it feels like there's a lot of confusion. It's definitely a complex area. And I think we've seen like almost a doubling of endorsed midwives over the last one to two years. And they are, that's going to continue to increase as we look at scope of practice across Australia as well and just access in general. So this is an absolute priority area. And I'm really pleased you raised it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just add that, you know, at where I was working at Sunshine Caseload Program have now fully embraced the flexible work options for MGP and with EFTs of 0.5 and upwards, every team has multiple part-time members within the team and it's meant that a lot of those midwives who were, you know, had grown up in their midwifery around MGP are now returning after maternity leave and going back into that model of care and it's totally workable. And I'm just so pleased to be seeing that that's a way we are not, you know, losing those precious skills and knowledge. Yeah, it definitely talks to continuity because midwives, as they graduate, are doing their continuity of care experiences and their workforce ready for continuity. But then because of different situations, even just, you know, nationally, it's between 20 and 40% to access a continuity model, depending on where you are. And so midwives can't even work in these models. And when they do, that you need to look at flexibility. I know understanding the definition of continuity of carer and also of care is also important and the difference between those. And when I first was exposed to this, it was care by no more than three known midwives. So I think it's also being able to have a model of care where you've got flexibility within it as well and you've got your buddy midwife or you've got some backup and it's the way you communicate with the women on your caseload to actually um, coordinate that care so you don't miss out on your work-life balance as well and can still provide the care expected from the women that are accessing that service. So. Just celebrating the progress that has made because I remember being that new grad midwife that wanted to work in continuity of care and being told I wasn't skilled enough um, because I was a new grad and now seeing new grad positions in continuity. So just celebrating those wins because they're huge and they take a lot of effort often and a lot of capacity and a lot of, you know, incredible midwifery leaders standing up and saying, no, we can do this and we can support this and really forward thinkers. So just celebrating that because I know a lot of what we're going to talk about today feels a bit doomy and gloomy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and let's talk about then, um, Linnell, you really pointed out some big things that create challenges for the midwifery workforce. And what what are the things that are leading midwives to want to leave? Wow. Well, I mean, I think it's just a culmination of the forces. So it's multiple factors that are, are resulting in burnout or resulting in distress and, and also just impaired well-being and interfering with people's life outside of midwifery. So, yeah, that wasn't the focus of, of my studies, but I can talk to it. And I just, I know that it's um, really when the review has identified that there's untenable levels of adversity in the workplace, that that's that says enough. It's an OH&S issue. You know, we, 
we need to protect and preserve the midwifery workforce. And so we need to get creative about how to do that. And I, I mean, I'm heartened by some of the the strategies that we'll be talking about later, but it is really about not being in denial of the current situation and looking at ways that we can move from discussing it to taking and implementing action. And do you think the challenges that midwives are up against are fundamental to every workplace? Do you think there's anywhere that midwives are safe? Yeah, I do. And so we should be looking to those places and and championing them and and looking to how, what are the features of those environments? And what I hear from people who are in those environments, it's about genuinely respectful and multi-collaborative, multidisciplinary and collaborative relationships. And so there isn't the us and them mentality that exists in those workplaces. It's about where people are acknowledged and um, recognised for the work that they do. Their philosophy of midwifery is, is nurtured and encouraged and given space. But really importantly to me, there is space for connection and genuine connection and knowledge sharing. And so, yeah, I they're like the unicorn, but they exist. And we need to really also just throw light on to those and really understand why they're working so well. Yeah. And for those who maybe haven't felt it, what is, what's burnout? What does it feel like? And I imagine some midwives are in a state in their career where they don't really know what they're feeling. And part of what I wanted to talk about today was to give some words and descriptions about what things like burnout feel like. What is this idea of moral distress? That somehow if we can give people some words to maybe describe what they're experiencing so they're not so confused about why they're struggling in their work. So can we talk through burnout? What's what's that? I just want to say, Lanelle, in terms of what is it, sympathetically when we look at the nervous system, right, it is for most people what they will feel is either complete overwhelm or numbness. Now, when we look at here, connection is probably the biggest thing that is going to enable us to move forward here and what in connection between those um, different disciplines in order to be able to connect as a human you have to be able to receive and give love which is not something we do when we're in sympathetic domination which is survival mode and so that's that complete numbness and shut out. And so what most people will feel with burnout is really that deep sympathetic state, which the body is always working from a beautiful state of protection, and it will come in with that numbness. And that's the just keep swimming, just keep swimming. And if we really look at that in the profession and then the flow-on effect that that has in our personal lives. And, and so I think sometimes that burnout, we can be confused with it because what we're actually feeling is burnout in our personal life because we're giving all our capacity in our work life but actually that's burnout too that's that's paid work burnout when our unpaid work we have no capacity for I just wanted to jump in there because that connection piece is so vital but for those that are like I don't even know how to do that or I can't even imagine that that's possible it's often because what you're in is survival mode which is sympathetic domination and so yeah numbness I think is a huge numbness and disconnection to self and then disconnection to 
your external environment. So either at work, at paid work colleagues, or disconnection between you and your partner or children or family and friends is really that biggest sign of burnout and not understanding or knowing that sense of calm. I'm so glad you answered that question because a, a numbness was definitely a feature I would have spoken to, but you said it so beautifully, B. And it is almost that it's, I mean, I haven't experienced burnout because I was able to recognize those signs and take steps to intercept and to, you know, to take care of myself. So I didn't reach that point. But the people that I have known to experience it, it's not something you can easily come back from. And it's not something you can easily come back into midwifery after experiencing burnout. So it's so important that we're being proactive rather rather than reactive. And you raised a really good point there. It really is such a personal experience. What burnout will feel like for one person is very different for what it will feel and look like for another. For some people, it's the loss of the midwifery soul in the fire. For others, it's a constant state of nervousness. For others, it's a hell of a lot of fatigue because we really value the intellect in our culture and we stay in that prefrontal cortex. And the sign of burnout is that constant overthinking and that constant state of being in that prefrontal cortex as opposed to being in the body. And what is often needed is the deep connection to the body to give the body what the body needs, which is often things like movement to shift the adrenaline or that to be able to shift that um, state to come back. And so I think in our society, we're extremely exhausted, regardless, not just in midwifery, but certainly within the profession, there is a state of exhaustion too. It can also look like extreme powerlessness and a powerlessness within self and powerlessness within the system. So a disbelief that you have any ability to make change and zero willingness to want to be involved in anything, just that complete doom and gloom that nothing's going to change, nothing will change, and that you're really helpless. And as midwives, we're a very oppressed profession. You know, a plumber can't come and do carpentry work, but an obstetrician can look after normal physiological um, birth. And so really... Part of our profession has been stolen. And what that does is it places us down in that hierarchy and it keeps us more oppressed. I feel like so much of what happens in midwifery is that feeling of frustration and anger because anger really masks sadness and powerlessness, right? Anger is often a mask for feeling powerlessness and sad. And so if there's anger there, what often needs to happen is that drop down into into feeling the grief that many of us feel as midwives. It's actually a hell of a lot of grief that we're not practicing the way we want to, or we're not able to provide the care that we want to. Um, Alison, was there anything that you that was standing out for you for midwives and the topic of burnout? Yeah, for me, I think I've seen a, a little bit of overwhelm and that's probably one word we didn't bring in to this conversation. And I think when you feel overwhelmed, then you can't pay a lot of attention to what you're doing. And also in a real terms, there's more uh, illness. You, you physically become unwell and not able to either work or look after your family. And, you know, when you can't look after yourself and your family, you obviously can't commit to the women that you're um, supporting. And so you see increased days off at work, absenteeism, those sorts of things, and just a lack of joy. And I think you touched on that, B. It was like 
if you don't, if you can't come to work and be your best self, then you don't get enjoyment out of that. And I think that, yeah, overwhelm would sum it up for me and what I've seen in my workplace, but also as a manager in previous roles and different models of care. But um, also when you talk, touched on power, I think all power sits with the woman and that's, they're our biggest teacher. I always come back to whenever things are a bit rough, I come back to why am I here? Why am I midwife? And look at the women that teach me every single day. And that's what gets me through. And then, you know, looking at supportive uh, ways. I don't I don't think it matters where you are in your career. You need a mentor and you need support as you'll have different feelings at different times in your career. And we recently did a survey and I was really surprised that the majority of the respondents were midwives with over 20 years experience. I was really expecting our early career midwives and our students in midwifery to be the ones that would respond because sometimes you, you do see that people just get a bit fed up towards once they've hit that 20 year mark and they're like, oh, I've been saying this for such a long time. I'm not going to say it anymore, but it's really important that we address how we're feeling and what's going on in our workplaces. And it really does matter. And yes, we want women and birthing people to hold the power, but midwives need to start holding power. I really think that is how we're going to move forward is actually coming into our own power as midwives, believing in ourselves, knowing that we are incredibly intelligent, we are incredibly skilled, and we are so very capable. We have the answers. I mean, we have the research that says how incredible we are. And I think we need to drop into that. And I'm not talking like aggressive power. I'm talking like compassionately fierce power where we're like, yes, we know this, right? We know how good we are and we need to hold that. We really need to hold that energy um, in order to, to start shifting. Things. And another thing that came up in your paper, and it may have just been like a one single line, Linnell, but it piqued my interest because a lot of the nursing literature talks about this idea of moral distress, but it seems like a new thing for midwifery literature. But when I read those words, moral distress, I was like, whoa, that feels like exactly what midwives are feeling. Can we talk about that idea of moral distress? Because, again, if you haven't heard these words before and if you just heard them and went, oh, my gosh, that's exactly it, what is it? What's moral distress? Well, um, I, there's a really great paper that was published, I think, last year by Wendy Foster, and it's about defining moral distress in the context of midwifery. But she actually, through looking at all the literature, developed a, in collaboration, a definition of moral distress in the context of midwifery. And she defines it as a psychological suffering following clinical situations of moral uncertainty and or constraint which result in an experience of personal powerlessness where the midwife perceives an inability to preserve all competing moral commitments. And I think that just it's, I just want to hold a mic and drop it right there <laughs> because it's a, it's an encapsulating definition I feel that would capture a lot of, would resonate strongly with people. So it's literally a departing from the moral standard that you would hold yourself to as a midwife and feeling powerless to actually stick to that moral and feeling like you're required to act what feels like immorally in your workplace because that's the expectation. And the paper sort of broke it into, the definition sort of breaks into constraint distress, which looks at hierarchical power dynamics, mm -hmm. and uncertainty distress, which I think looks at 
more your personal value system with the clinical situation or the ethical dilemmas that unfold. I just know, I mean, I hear about it often when speaking with midwives about that feeling where they feel like they're, they aren't practicing in alignment with their own philosophy. There is a compromise being made. There is a feeling of complicitness and that great discordance that that, that results in. Mm-hmm. And that's quite closely related to another thing I want to talk about, professional dissonance. I mean, you talk about that in your paper. I think that was that that is in reference to not being able to practice within your um to your scope of midwifery to your philosophy of midwifery and not being able to connect with people who you feel are like-minded midwives and practitioners and and more broadly with those people within a multidisciplinary team as well who mightn't resonate with your own uh, with the standards of midwifery or the philosophy of midwifery practice so when your care is inhibited by those things it creates a dissonance does that answer your question it does. I mainly just want to help people give words to what they're possibly experiencing and going, I don't understand why I'm feeling like this. Okay. So let's talk about workplace adversities. And Alison, you would have something to add to this, I'm sure. So workplace adversities were one thing that is wearing down the midwifery workforce. So which what did you identify? You said a, a little, a few things at the beginning. Yeah. Okay, that. so this is it broken down. We've got staff shortages, poor skill mix, lack of flexible work options, lack of control or in terms of rostering communication. There was great uncertainty around people, where they were going to work and who they were going to be working with. So that feeling of uncertainty created a destabilisation. Feelings that risk-adverse policies and protocols inhibit the provision of midwifery clinical decision-making, increased medicalization of the of midwifery and inhibition of midwifery autonomy. So they were the key sort of systemic factors mm-hmm. that were under the adversity title. And then we moved into the inherent nature of midwifery work, which was also identified as being the gravity of responsibility that midwives feel, as well as the emotional labour involved in supporting families who are experiencing bereavement, exposure to obstetric violence and vicarious trauma associated with that, Mm -hmm. and again, being unable to practice in alignment with the philosophy. So they were really reoccurring themes that came again and again through all the literature. Does that resonate with you, Alison? Definitely. And I have just read this week, there was a study coming out of the UK called the Remain Study, which is researching why midwives stay or leave to improve retention. And that study is designed to develop an evidence-based retention program for midwives in the UK. And I think there's some potential benefits to look at that in the Australian landscape. And they have covered off all of the things you've listed there. And the one other that I noticed was the inability to provide quality care. And often that can come from if you're working in the hospital system where you've got a significant number of mums and babies. And we know that we don't count babies in Australia as a separate, it's a mum and baby dyad rather than two different clinical care needs. And so if you're running around trying to provide care to those women and babies on on that shift that you just can't provide the care that you know you want to and that contributes also to burnout and emotional distress. Yeah. Mm. 
And interestingly as well, when you put in the impact of this, Linnell, uh, it says that uh, that five of the studies you looked at identified the relationship between workplace adversity, midwives, natives, psychosocial and physical well-being, which manifested in levels of sick leave, which is what you mentioned earlier, Alison, job dissatisfaction, low morale, poor work-life balance, burnout, compromised patient care, risk of increased clinical error and the inability to endure in the midwifery profession. So not only is the midwife put at risk, but just by that being her being in that state or him being in that state actually flows on to put the women and the people in their care at risk. So that's alarming to know that actually if you've got a beaten down workforce, somewhere down the track you're going to end up with poorer outcomes simply as a result of that yep so that is a red flag for we need to make change and we need to make it very soon the other theme I saw out of this study I recently read was that the top five reasons for leaving directly related to the working life and rather than individual level factors so we see that um these are modifiable factors. So if we change the workplace, then midwives are less likely to leave the profession because they are actually leaving for personal reasons significantly less. And a personal reason might be something like childcare access or just another opportunity elsewhere or retirement, whereas the system level impacts are a lot higher. And so, and they are modifiable. Mm. And so we could, I mean, we can fix this situation. It's not like, like there are, midwives are a passionate, skilled bunch of people. We're, we're not really there. I mean, there's there's some personal benefit to obviously being employed, but midwives want to do a really good job and they want to stay in their work, but there's so many challenges in their work that they're struggling. So, and either of you, I'd love to hear from both of you, what needs to change internationally and here in Australia to prevent midwives from feeling this way in their workplace and actually retaining midwives and making them feel joy in their work rather than trying to endure and push through and get sick and compromise care? I've got a lot to say, but I'm happy to defer to you, Alison. First. I'll just I'll jump in with the the midwifery leadership. So I I really think that if we've got strong midwifery leadership in Australia, and then in the state, and then at each level across midwifery, then you're going to prioritise continuity, and you're going to prioritise midwives. You're going to prioritise women. We know that all of our research shows the benefits for midwifery continuity of care, whether that's in a caseload MGP or whether that's privately practicing midwife or publicly funded home birth or private home birth. They um, the outcomes there are significantly improved when uh, a woman can and her family can access continuity, and when you look at having midwifery strong midwifery leadership, these things will be prioritised at that local level as well. But it is so important to have midwifery leadership from middle management all the way through to executive um, directors of midwifery that have decision-making ability. And one example I'll give you is that during COVID, there was a knee-jerk reaction for midwives to come from 
midwifery group practice and continuity models into the hospital system to plug roster gaps. If there were strong midwifery leaders, that should never have happened. That would have brought midwives out of the hospital setting into the community to look after women outside of that hospital scenario. So that's one example. And on top of that, we need layers of support for midwives from the minute they're a student in midwifery all the way up until the time they um, retire. And we need to challenge our middle career midwives with opportunities that will drive them to want to stay in the profession. So yes, we've got great supports for graduates usually if they can access employment in the area they want to. And then there's transition to retirement somewhat, but there's a huge gap in the middle. And I think we need to really address how we keep midwives in the workforce and through, whether that's through mentoring, but I really loved how you said right at the start of this podcast that it was connection. So you have to feel connected and you have to feel related and welcome in your workplace talking about a mentoring program since I was on the board, which was many years ago now. Um, And so just seeing, is there anything, because we know the research really supports mentoring, right? Midwives mentoring other midwives. Is there anything in the process of ACM picking that back up or, you know, mentoring, supervision, whatever you want to call it, other professions do it, right? Yeah, definitely. So I might start with the mentoring because I think that's a huge opportunity. And internally at ACM, yes, we're definitely looking at mentorship and how that that can be expanded. And if you look out for the state conference in Tasmania, that is where that's going to be launched and that's early in 2024. Um, So we're progressing that. So we're really excited about that. After ICM in Bali, there was a strong focus on midwifery leadership and the ICM were doing a, it was called, their program is called the Young Midwifery Leadership Program, but I'm looking more at an emerging leader or how to support our leaders in Australia. So watch this space for that. And as part of this role as a chief midwife, I'm really looking at how we develop and support leadership in Australia. And also wanted to mention with mentoring, some states have got little programs. So it would be really great if you're listening and in a different state to actually go back to your either workplace or your college or your local or state midwifery advisors and ask what the state's doing to promote midwifery leadership and mentorship and really put it on their radar. But also really important to pick back up on clinical supervision. If you haven't been exposed to clinical supervision or you're not aware of that, uh, look for clinical supervision because all midwives should have access to clinical supervision. And that is not being supervised clinically in your workplace. It is a peer support uh, version of working through, you know, challenges that you have in the workplace and that can be one-on-one or in a team environment so that's a really huge opportunity if we want to progress really progress the profession with our current workforce challenges and everything else that's going on in competing for resources and what we're really trying to do is set midwifery as its own profession and and really set it apart from nursing so that we can do things to protect the workforce the profession, but also the care that we provide, which means really driving things. Like we want people in these positions that know the research experienced in midwifery, not just nursing and midwifery. And so that's what, you know, what we're talking about here is this position being created 
that's separate to nursing. The other thing, Alison, that you really raised that was in, uh, really important is, and something I'm deeply compassionate, uh, deeply passionate about, is that we all need to be members of the ACM. Um, I'm totally going to, I'm not sponsored to plug that. I was on the board of the ACM. I totally believe that we need that peak professional body. We need something that says we stand together. Um, and the more money ACM has, the more in terms of, you know, and the more the more numbers they have, the more they can do with that and say, we actually speak for midwives. Um, and so getting involved locally in your state and nationally, it's so important. I know that stuff can often seem a bit boring, but that's where your connection comes into. That's where you find your people. And it's if we're going to change things on a um, government level, we need that power in government. And, you know, I remember being on the board and just like, other organizations had a hell of a lot more money than we did because they were in medicine and so they had like Ranscog has a lobbyer so a person that is in the parliament lobbying we couldn't afford that and this is where that membership is so important to really understand that your money goes towards us being able to lobby for you a couple of things there. Thank you so much for that. And I, I think there's a, a number of things. Strength in numbers, definitely. Um, yes, I'll be in Canberra next week and also the week after our lobbying as well. But there's definitely the more people we can get involved in that, the much stronger the voice is. So highly uh, agree with that. Thank you. And also ACM has just made student membership free for all students ongoing <clears throat> because I honestly believe now is the right time for midwifery. We're going to see change. We've got incredible research that's coming out. We've got a government that is listening at the moment to, um, you know, even just wanting to know what is an endorsed midwife is a great thing. We're looking at the removal of collaborative arrangements. There's so many opportunities now to really keep that momentum going. And the more we talk about it, um, the more, you know, we'll be able to influence the profession. And I think that brings me back to this having midwifery leadership having dis decisions made by midwives for midwives not through our very complementary nursing colleagues and with the change in national law into legislation around having the midwifery identified as its own profession is really important that we continue on that trajectory and implement the research and put that into practice now and increase continuity and just you know, the, the limit's endless. I think it's a really positive time to be coming into midwifery, coming back into midwifery if we can tempt you back, and also for those considering a, a brand-new career. Yeah, and I have to agree with you on the strong – I like that you emphasise strong leadership. We don't just need midwifery leadership because I know there's certainly some people in leadership positions that are midwives that are not necessarily encouraging MGP programs or continuity of care or actually peddling any of the evidence-based strategies that we know work for women. And so you mentioned, you know, private midwives, publicly funded home birth, MGP programs, basically any situation where a woman can access her own midwife, regardless of where it is, is going to improve care for women we also know from research that midwives in those models are a lot more satisfied, less prone to burnout. And if the workplace can support those models, then I do think we could turn things around. And I think you're right, Alison, that we're on the cusp of some big change. And what heartened me in the COVID situation is I saw how quickly within days or weeks, 
we could change how care was provided almost overnight because we did it. We watched the entire system change and agree to changes that uh, we haven't previously implemented in in midwifery care, in, in maternity care. So I do believe with a big push, there could be change. We could change it next week if everyone was on board. You know, we were Absolutely. all on board. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And so I think if you're in a situation where you can see the midwifery leadership is not on the side of mid of midwives, you can identify some of the problems in your workplace just right there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Nell, I'd love to hear from you too. You've been very diligently taking in all of our ideas. Yeah, no, it's so reassuring to hear. And I feel, I mean, I don't want to be Pollyanna about it, but I also felt in in COVID, we had this destigmatization of home birth. And we saw so many people accessing home birth that normally or pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, wouldn't have traditionally accessed it. And so it was real opportunity for learning and demystifying and, you know, heightening access to home birth. I hope that that continues to just grow and emerge as a viable option and accessible option for families. I feel like also, you know, it's a chance to revisit how we were working and I hope that we have a little bit of a clean slate that we can build and reinvent. And like B said, I'm just so passionate. This is an opportunity we need to fight to reclaim midwifery. And it's something I speak with my students about and I know there is that energy and passion. And we need to, like my and, and my colleagues' approach, we are teaching how to be a midwife. We're not teaching how to be an obstetric nurse but we are also having to prepare them for the reality of the world that they're walking into. So it's very tricky and it's a challenge, but we can't give up on midwifery and we have to teach it and we have to reclaim it. And this is exactly what the Great Birth Rebellion is about. What we're saying is, is we need to come back to what we know works and can we please just acknowledge that we're not doing what works for women and midwives currently and this is where I think the crisis point is. You know, we had the the study that recently came out that told us that one third of women are coming out of their births uh, with birth trauma. And now we've got this research. And we know that the midwifery workforce is in crisis and burnout and feeling various levels of distress. And we also know from research that a really satisfying solution for everybody is if midwives and women could just get together. But this is what the rebellion is about. And it is to just keep pushing midwifery to the fore, reminding people that it's an evidence-based strategy to improve outcomes for women, but also for the midwifery workforce. And Linnell, you had some really specific solutions that were identified in these papers. Yeah, and I think um, Alison touched on so many of them, like through Mm -hmm. strengthening of the professional body and promotion of the midwifery role and particularly around these appointments of the key chief positions. It's just, it's it's so exciting to see because then we're going to be able to advocate for systemic change, for increased funding uh, through the union for appropriate remuneration of midwives as well and to address workforce planning issues and get on the front foot because we've been so having... We've had to be so reactive. So it's just changing to a proactive approach on an organisational level 
there definitely needs to be recognition and support of the midwifery scope and for midwives to practice autonomously. And I don't mean independently. Of course, we're working in a collaboratively multidisciplinary fashion, as indicated, but also the commitment and cultivation of positive workplace cultures and well-being cultures is so important. At a work unit level, the literature showed that there was a need for strong midwifery leadership and that establishment and cultivation of professional relationships and connections. And at the individual level, it's supporting meaningful self-care and well-being strategies and that support networks are given the opportunity to be fostered. So it's not just seeing it as the individual's responsibility to bring their resilience game to their midwifery. It's about how we can support holistically in a, a framework that's going to support people to thrive. Absolutely. And a part of our responsibility as midwives as well is to go to management, people in management and leadership positions and just kind of making them aware of what's happening on the ward level. Like, do you realise, you know, I remember as a student talking to the management and saying, you know, I didn't have lunch any of these days. And the response was, yeah, but some days it's quiet and you get lunch then. And I said, lunch is not optional. You can't, I can't not eat every single day that I'm at work. And so just that attitude of like, yeah, but some days it's quiet and then you do get lunch. But I mean, I couldn't identify a quiet day. And so it's at that level where you need support, where the person who's in leadership needs to go, whoa, it's not appropriate that the sta- that staff are not eating in their day. And I imagine everyone's going, yeah, I don't get to eat. And, you know, how long have we all held our we for? Because we just can't leave. And That's so, right. yeah, yeah, those things are just so normalised in our workforce. workforce. <laughs> Right. That's kind of, that's a very basic level of it. But if every day you're going to work and you're dehydrated and hungry, like it's not, it's not sustainable. I had something a lot more important to say, and I can't remember what it was because I was talking about we and lunch. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. It's gone. (laughs) (laughs) It happened to me earlier, so I'm (laughs) glad it wasn't just me. And it was really important. Yeah, I was like, oh, but there was going to be like a crescendo. Um, now there isn't. Um, that's okay. I'm sure we'll get there. Um, oh, that's what I was going to say. So in my head, I've been formulating a list of solutions. We're going to solve the world's problems today as you've all been talking. So we all need to become members of the Australian College of Midwives because that, as B was saying, that's that's a opportunity for change. Uh, we all need to be lobbying the people who are in charge of us for yep. better circumstances, which include setting up MGP programs, publicly funded home birth programs, and working with workloads, like you were saying, Linnell, earlier, that some models are working out ways for MGP midwives to work part-time and job share. And that's just really acknowledging where our workforce is, mm-hmm. you know, Women um, predominantly in midwifery, we have babies and we have children and we have a life outside of work that we'd like to commit to, but we also still want to be midwives. And so it shouldn't have to be a choice between MGP and that kind of, that those commitments. And so asking your, the 
midwives who are in leadership above you or in your workplace, tell them what you need in order to have more job satisfaction, better outcomes for women. And we know that that sits with continuity models. So starting to lobby so that, you know, and my mum always said the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Mm-hmm. You just have to be a pain in the ass about it. <laughs> yep. so, and the Queensland midwives did it this week. You know, the government had committed millions of dollars to maternity care and not one single cent was going to be sent on, spent on midwives. There was a single amazing protest and all of a sudden they came up with $16 million that had a midwifery focus. So a little bit of noise actually does change things because, I mean, government doesn't know everything. It, it is up to us to educate them about what's going on. So you've got to get involved in that. You know, there was the recent inquiry into birth trauma. They got thousands and thousands and thousands of pages and submissions to educate them about what's happening and then something can be done about it. So those are a few little things that are going to make a difference in the midwifery workforce. And if you're considering leaving midwifery, maybe seek out a continuity of care model. Seek out something that's going to be a lot more nourishing. Don't leave. Please don't leave. (laughs) Keep going. But you have to still look after yourself. So work out where that's going to work. Um, any other advice from you guys for midwives who are listening and thinking, oh my gosh, I just do have just realized I'm burnt out and I'm feeling a sense of moral distress because of the professional dissonance. We're, they're realizing that. So what next for midwives who are feeling stuck in that circumstance? I think it's okay to admit that you're not okay and reach out to get help. So you don't have to fix everything for everyone all of the time because you really need to be on your A game all of the time for women. So if you are feeling burnt out, overwhelmed, distressed, please seek support wherever that looks like. Um, Please seek a mentor. It doesn't matter where you are in your career. It's one of the best things I've ever done and they change throughout your career. You, You need different things at different times. So please look for a mentor either in your workplace but also external to your workplace and also look into clinical supervision if it's not available in your workplace and it's just really important again like you said before Mel to really lobby for contemporary leadership they need to have a real understanding of what it's like to be a midwife today and I just wanted to um, share a very quick story um, and a dream of mine I've just recently uh judged on two separate midwifery student award panels and you can see and feel the enthusiasm and eagerness that are coming through the applications as student midwives so what we need to do is create a workforce where we don't lose that because you still want to maintain that passion and drive that you have when you first enter midwifery long into your career so that you're telling your families and multiple um, midwives down the track about your experience. So that that's my dream, that we create a workforce that is safe for midwives and for women. I think there's strong intention from the midwives. I think it needs to be harnessed and, and basically workplaces need to provide environments that are going to provide more uh, supportive frameworks for people to be able to endure in the profession. And it really comes down to all of those factors working in alignment. Mm. Beautiful. I think we've done it. I think we've solved everyone's problems today. (laughs) And tonight, if you're listening, if you're a burnt out midwife, 
good deep bath, some quiet time, and a little plan of what you're going to do when you see your the midwifery leaders in your workplace. What are you going to tell them that needs to happen to fix things in your workplace? That that would be the start. Mm. Yeah. Any last words, guys, before we wrap up this episode? Just thank you for having the conversation, Mel and B, and lovely to meet you, Alison, and just excited to see what lies ahead. Absolutely. I couldn't echo that enough. It, it's such a great thing to say I'm a midwife and to hear my kids say my mum's a midwife is just such a, a huge thing. So, um, yeah, thank you for in, this important work of getting the message out and being brave enough to talk about the real things. Mm. Amazing. Thanks, guys. That's been this week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion, and we'll see you all again in the next episode. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> All right.